I hope you all enjoyed a special time with friends and family over the holidays. And I hope you all received awesome gifts for Christmas. One of the most amusing or interesting gifts given to me, I think it's a gift that Pastor Casey probably really wanted, was this. (laughs) This is a selfie stick. I mean, check this thing out. It looks like a putter, right? But I thought since I had everybody here in the new, new year, we would take a quick family church selfie. All right, I'm not going to be able to fit them at the walk far away here to get this here. All right, I hope everyone's smiling. It's hard to see from here. Okay, one, two, three. All right, awesome, awesome. Happy New Year. This looks, I mean, the selfie stick works well. Luke, I'm going to have, well, wait, the sermon. No taking selfies during the sermon. Okay, you. Thank you, appreciate it. All right, it's, it's a little awkward, you know, having that thing. I don't know in public if it's going to be more awkward to ask somebody to take a picture for you or carry that selfie stick around in public. Well, I've got the show and tell stuff out of my system now. So let's get into our text this morning. We're going to be in John 7, verses 37 through 39. John 7, verses 37 through 39, and this is where Jesus is at the Feast of Booths talking to a crowd of Jewish people, and in this section, Christ does something out of the ordinary, and that might not mean much to us because Christ always does things out of the ordinary, but this time he does something different, uncanny even for Christ. It's uncharacteristic even for him. He offers an invitation to the people, but as we turn to this great invitation of Christ. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you. We thank you that we can come here and worship and glorify you as a corporate body of believers. Father, help us to be people who are glorifying you in our daily lives, Father. I ask that you be with us now as we jump into your word, and I ask that your spirit be reaching and touching and convicting and challenging our hearts and minds as your word is preached. In Christ's name, amen. John seven thirty seven starts, and, and it says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you picture this scene, the last day of the feast, remembering this would be the final time that some of these folks would ever see Christ again, and he stands up and cries out in deep emotion, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We can imagine Christ's eyes scanning the crowd as he said this, as he knew the hearts of the people. Christ knew where these people were at. Christ knew those that were in despair. He knew those that were facing many troubles. He knew those that were going through many struggles and were having much pain in their life. He also recognized the haters in the group, those that didn't like him at all, that were threatened by his authority. Christ sees the crowd. He even sees those that are interested that are probably going to follow him. He sees them hanging on every word that he says. Some believed in Christ while others were curious, while still others wanted to kill him. Christ knew the crowd. 
And he gives the clarion call. He invites the people to follow him. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus says, everyone come. I want everyone to raise a hand or to walk an aisle or to say a prayer. Everyone is invited. Is that what Christ says? Of course, the answer is no. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. To respond to the call means you have to be thirsty. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm thirsty right now. It would be nice to have a nice cup of water or a fresh glass of iced tea. It reminds me of how thirsty my children are at bedtime. They'll be playing all day. It'll be 90 degrees outside. The sun is beaming, and they're running here and everywhere. I mean, I get tired and thirsty just watching them run around all day. I have to physically stop them. So they will get something to drink, but it never fails. When I say the magic words, it's bedtime. They all are all of a sudden super thirsty. Somehow the words bedtime lead to symptoms like dry mouth, extreme dehydration, extreme thirst. I haven't quite figured out this phenomenon yet with my boys, but here in our passage, Christ says, if anyone thirsts, let him come. The prerequisite, the requirement is to come to Christ, is being thirsty. But Christ isn't actually talking about physical thirst like my boys at bedtime. Christ is talking about another type of thirst. It is a thirst that can't be quenched by the coldest or purest of water. Which leads to point number one. Jesus invites the spiritually thirsty to come. Point number one says that Jesus invites the spiritually thirsty to come. The question is, what does it mean to be spiritually thirsty? What does it look like to have a thirsty soul? Let's turn to Matthew 5. Let's all open our Bibles to Matthew 5, but keep our spot in John 7 here. To answer this question, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It is where Jesus gave his most prolific, his most famous sermon. And within these, this great sermon, I want us to focus on two verses in Matthew 5. Verses 3 and 4 to get the right picture of what it looks like to be spiritually thirsty. To see what happens on the inside for someone to truly thirst God's way. Jesus says this. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word for blessed can also be translated as happy. God wants us to be happy, or a better way to say it, God wants us to have joy as his children. Let me ask us as parents in the congregation if we enjoy seeing our children happy, and of course the answer is yes, right? Well, likewise, God wants us to be people who walk through life with a deep, residing joy that looks different than what the world offers with shallow happiness. But why are these people happy? Why are these people blessed? Is it because they have the most toys or happy are those who have the largest bank accounts or happy are those who travel the world or happy are those who have the most friends or happy are those who are the high achievers or happy are those who are physically healthy? These are the ways the world says we find fulfillment, we find happiness. But the happiness Christ is talking about isn't based on success or financial gain or good health. As Jesus says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. 
poor in spirit simply means to know we are spiritually helpless within ourselves, that we are spiritually bankrupt within our own being, which leads to point number two. The thirsty ones know they need God's help. The thirsty ones know they need God's help. We recognize our need for something more. We are lacking something. We begin to thirst. We are dehydrated spiritually. Porn spirit looks like the person who knows something is wrong within themselves. They know they can't fix it. They, de- they can't depend on themselves any longer. Those that are thirsty know that they are utterly helpless. They recognize within themselves they are useless. They know their life lacks real meaning, real purpose. Going through the motions of life seems fruitless. If anything, life seems like one big failure after the next. So they turn from looking within, looking to self, to looking upward, to Christ. They start to thirst. They turn to Christ as God draws them to himself. And this leads to the second reality of someone who is thirsty, which is Matthew 5, 4. And it says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Being poor in spirit leads to mourning. But what are they actually mourning over is the question. Well, let's think about that for a moment. They look to God as they turn away from self. And as they look to God, they see who they really are. God's holiness, his his perfect purity begins to shine down on them. And it magnifies who they really are. And they see their sinfulness for the first time. It would be like putting a perfectly white towel next to an oil-stained one. The white stands in stark contrast to the oil-stained towel. The oil-stained towel represents the ugliness of our wickedness, our sinfulness, as we stand in the presence of a holy, perfect, and pure God. We see ourselves a little clearer. We see the reality of our sin-stained hearts. We mourn, we weep, or we should be mourning, we should be weeping, we should be wailing over how we have lived in rebellion against a holy God. Our selfishness, our pride, our fears, the worry, the lack of love, the hardness of heart is so clear in view of God's holiness shining down on us. It's the husband who mourns over the lack of love he has shown to his wife. Or it's the wife who is brokenhearted over the lack of honor she has given to her husband. Or it's the teen who is horrified for having such a disrespectful attitude towards his parents. Or it's the dad or the mom who weeps over the fact that they discipline their children out of frustration and anger instead of training them in the admonition of the Lord. But ultimately what causes them to mourn isn't the fact that they've sinned against others, but first and foremost, they know that their sin is rebellion against their God. Amen? And it leads to brokenness. It leads to weeping. It leads to sorrow. It leads to mourning. It looks like 2 Corinthians 7.10, which says, For godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief, other translation says godly sorrow produces or brings forth repentance. The question is, what is repentance? I ask what repentance is because I usually get answers like, well, repentance is being sorry for sin. Or repentance is confessing your sins to God. Or 
repentance is asking God for forgiveness. These may be included in repentance, but clearly confession is not repentance. Confession of sin is confession of sin. And forgiveness of sin is forgiveness of sin, not repentance. Repentance means to turn from or to change your mind or to change the inner man. John MacArthur says repentance is not just a change of mind, but a change of heart. Repentance is going in one direction and turning and going the opposite way. Repentance is worshiping self and turning from self and worshiping God who deserves all glory and honor in our life. When we are thirsty and we turn to Christ, it leads to action. It leads to transformation. We are refreshed. We are renewed. We find hope as we experience the cleansing power of God's abundant grace in our lives. And that leads to point number three. The thirsty ones know they need God's grace. The thirsty ones know they need God's grace. I'm thirsty. Hold on one second here. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus cries out to us this morning. He pleads with love and mercy by saying, if you need help, are you in need of hope? Are you in need of relief? Are you in need of forgiveness of sin? Are you in need of God's mercy and grace? Are you in need of a Lord and Savior? God is the only one who can truly clear or delete our sin. God is the only one that can cleanse a sinner and make him a saint. The question is, are you thirsty this morning? The invitation is only given to those who see their need, who recognize they are helpless within themselves spiritually, who see the need to be cleansed from their sin-stained heart. Maybe you've come this morning and haven't realized what was wrong what you needed. Maybe you've tried other avenues to find relief. Maybe you have been enslaved to what others have thought about you. Or maybe you've turned to binge eating or dieting to gain control over your life. And now you're hooked. And you are now enslaved to thinking about food all the time. Or maybe you've focused on trying to work hard to find real purpose. And the harder you work, the more you feel empty. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're drowning in fear or worry. Or depression, and now you see that you are helpless within yourself and you are spiritually thirsty. The invitation is then for you, but it is for everyone, unbeliever and believer, who is thirsty, who recognizes their need for God, who see their helpless state, who turn from their sin and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, if we've answered Christ's invitation, then what? What does Christ do with those who respond in faith? Well, Jesus tells us in our next verse in John 7. And let's go back to John 7 if you're not there. John 7. Let's turn back there to verse 38. And Jesus says this. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What is this living water? What is the living water Christ gives us? It sounds sort of mystical. It sounds like something we can't control. It sounds like something that takes hold of us and transforms us from the inside out. Well, Jesus tells us what the living water is. Let's read one more verse down. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The living water Jesus was talking about was the Holy Spirit. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit for those who believed in Christ. See, at the time, the Holy Spirit wasn't yet fully indwelling God's people yet because God hadn't been crucified and rose from the grave yet. That's why Jesus says in John 14, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, this is remarkable. Jesus says to his disciples, is it better that I go? Because then the helper, which refers to the Holy Spirit, will come and indwell you? I think we often look back at the disciples with envy as if they had it made. I mean, they walked with Christ for three years. They saw the miracles. They watched Christ handle the toughest of situations. They saw his compassion and love for others. And they saw his zeal, his passion to glorify God his father in every situation. And yet Christ tells the disciples, it is better for you if I go because the counselor, the helper, the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit will come and live inside you and he will guide you, he will help you, he will counsel you, he will transform you in the likeness of Christ. What an astonishing thought. God living inside of us, amen? Amen. That should blow our minds. That should take our breath away. I mean, God lives in you and in me if we are children of God. I'm afraid that amazing truths we read in Scripture like this one, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, isn't that big a deal to us any longer. Let me ask us right now, which is more exciting to us this morning? Is it more exciting, more interesting? Are we more focused on where we want to eat for lunch? Or are we more excited about having God indwelling inside of us? Church, we need God to wake us up to revive us, to shake us out of our apathy, our lukewarmness, our worldliness, and cause us to be on fire for Christ once again. But wait a minute. For those who have Christ, it sounds like they will be knocking down doors. They will be zealous for Christ. Let's look back to verse 37 again. It says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, which leads to point number four. Christ satisfies those who are thirsty. Point number four says that Christ satisfies those that are thirsty. The question for those of us in Christ this morning, are we satisfied in Christ alone? Are we filled up with the things of God? Or are we chasing after false substitutes instead? Have you ever been grocery shopping when you were hungry, when you were starving, when you're about to eat the groceries right off the shelf? 
That's a bad idea. I'm not advocating that at all, so don't do that. Um, but I get in trouble when I go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. All of a sudden, I come home with a few extra items that I really wasn't planning on buying. And my wife begins to take the groceries out of the bags. She says, "Hun, why did you buy five pounds of cheese, three cartons of ice cream, and four jars of salsa? And I have two basic responses to such a question. The first is the responsible response, of course. I just wanted to make sure, hun, that we had enough food. I mean, what if all the grocery stores ran out of food at one time altogether? We would have cheese. We'd have salsa, jars of salsa. I should have got chips, but I just got the jars of salsa, right? Or the second way of responding to my wife would be the surprise response. How did that get in there? How did that get in there with my grocery bag? Next time, hon, that is never going to happen. I don't know who put that in there, but I didn't do it. Okay, that was a joke. I'm not, I don't lie to my wife. But the point is, often when we are starving, we can get junk food to fill us up. And often it seems similar to our spiritual walk. When life isn't going good, when we are struggling, we often turn to false substitutes instead of Christ. We try to fill ourselves with whatever we think will make us happy, what will satisfy us in that very moment. So let me just give you four ways people chase after false substitutes, which I call self-fulfillment. Number one, the first way people chase self-fulfillment is through addictions. The first way people chase Self-fulfillment is through addictions. An addict seeks moments of pleasure or euphoria to satisfy self. They are willing to sacrifice all for seconds of momentary satisfaction, fulfillment. Number two, the second way people chase self-fulfillment is through human worship. The second way people chase self-fulfillment is through human worship. What I mean is that they place others as idols in their life. They try to find their fulfillment, their satisfaction in a person like a spouse or a child or even a friend. They look to this individual for their security, for happiness. They're happy or depressed depending on how the relationship's going. Number three, the third way people chase self-fulfillment is through finances and materialism. The third way people chase self-fulfillment is through finances and materialism. They think riches or possessions are going to give them true satisfaction. What is the old saying about men? Happy are those who have the most toys, right? But I think it goes for women, too. Happy are the women who have the most shoes, right? Right? Amen? Number four, the fourth way people chase self-fulfillment is through work. The fourth way people chase self-fulfillment is through work. Many wrap themselves up in their job. They make what they do their identity. They think power, fame, prestige, or a challenge is going to give them real fulfillment, real and lasting purpose. An example of this would be Michael Jordan, the famous basketball player, which in my opinion, he was the best. That's just my opinion, though. But he said this once, I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. When asked how he replaces playing basketball, Jordan simply states, you don't. You learn to live with it. Jordan 
Michael Jordan lived for the next challenge, the next challenger. His identity, his fulfillment, his life lives in the past when he shot a ball in a basket. Let me ask us this morning, are you feeding on false substitutes? Are we trying to satisfy our thirst by finding fulfillment in, in things like addictions? Or are we trying to find our fulfillment in other people? Or are we trying to find our satisfactions in the things we have or the professions that we work? The reality is, church, we don't find fulfillment by looking for it. We find lasting fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And this leads to point number five. Fulfillment is a byproduct of following Christ. Point number five says that fulfillment is a byproduct of following Christ. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Christ, all spiritual blessings and treasures spiritually are found. In Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit that transforms us into a new creation. That's why Galatians 5, and 23 say this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In Christ we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit transforms us. It fulfills us unlike anything else in this world can offer or do. I mean, think about this for a minute. If we had more joy today than we had yesterday, would we be happier? Of course, the answer is yes. What if we had more love for God and others? I mean, think about it. If I had more love for our spouses, how would that revolutionize our marriages? Or what if we had more peace inwardly, and the peace that God gives us isn't based on circumstances? How would having more peace change our outlook on the situations that we're facing today? What if we had more self-control? What if we created God-glorifying habits like spending time daily in the scriptures or training our children consistently in the word? Or how would more self-control transform our daily routines? What if we had more patience? More patience behind the slow drivers. More patience in stressful situations. I wonder what more patience would do for us. What about our gentleness? What about more gentleness? What would it look like If we had more gentleness, we practice being more gentle towards our spouse or our children or even our enemies. How we need to be more gentle in the relationships that we're in. This is what the Holy Spirit fills us with. Walking with Christ leads us to real fulfillment, to true purpose, to lasting satisfaction. It isn't an instant, I want this now, but it is a gradual shaping and molding work that Christ does to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? But there's one final truth that I have time to go over because it's only 1057 that we need to highlight, and I'm gonna go back to it. So let's go back to John 7, 37. John 7, 37. And we're going to do the last part of this verse, 37. It says, out of, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we get this picture of water filling up a glass, but as the glass 
gets full. The water doesn't stop. It just keeps coming. It just keeps flowing. The water can't be stopped. It just keeps coming. It pours out of the glass and down the sides of the glass, which leads to point number six. The thirsty ones overflow with blessings on others. The thirsty ones overflow with blessings on others. The Holy Spirit is living water that comes in and refreshes and quenches and renews us. And then it overflows us inwardly. And in turn, the Holy Spirit pours out of us. That's how this works. It's like the cup that is overflowing with water. If you're standing by that cup, well, you're bound to get wet, right? Similarly, the joy. The peace, the love, the hope will spill out on everyone around us when we're walking in the power of the Spirit. What is our influence on others? Does our conversations, our passions, our actions reveal that the Holy Spirit is working in us? Well, in conclusion here, the question that we've been asking through this message is, are you thirsty this morning? Do you need Christ? Is your life in a place where Christ is your only option? Do you feel that the Holy Spirit is pulling you, drawing you to Christ? Because I would encourage you to believe that Christ is Lord and Savior and repent for living for yourself and doing things your own way and repent and turn and follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Others of us here today have been followers of Christ for a long time, and quite frankly, we aren't very thirsty. We've been living for the things of this world, and we are full of it. We have been, turned, we have been turning the junk food for a long time, and the sweets like cotton candy instead of steak. We've been feeding on entertainment, our own enjoyment, instead of seeking to live for Christ. And the scriptures tell us, if we are living for self instead of God, repent. Turn to Christ while there is time. And when we do, God is gracious. That hunger, that zeal for Christ will come back if we are willing to obey him. Amen? And finally, there are still some of us who are thirsty. And maybe we drink from Christ and we're growing in the spirit, and yet we still dabble in things that are wrong. We feel guilt-ridden because the secret sins, our secret life, we continue to live out, but we, and we continue to practice these sinful habits. If that is you, I would encourage you to confess your secret life to Christ. But then I would encourage you to find a mature believer in Christ that you trust and share this with them and let them walk alongside of you. This is what's called discipleship. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? But the reality is all of us need help. That's why God has given us. That's one of the reasons why God's given us the Holy Spirit because we can't do it on our own. But that's another reason why he's given us the local church. We are here to lift each other up, to encourage one another, to speak truth into one another's lives. Amen? May we be a thirsty people. May we be a thirsty church. People who are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, how you are so gracious to people like us, Father. Help us to be in awe of your mercy and your love 
and your grace and your continued patience with us, Father. Forgive us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in all the different ways that we sin in so many different ways, whether it's reacting, whether it's gossiping, whether it's saying hurtful things to others, Father, help us to walk in your humility and grace and to be people who speak the truth in love. But help us not to shy away from speaking the truth either, Father. Help us to not be people-pleasers, but to be God-pleasers. Help us to thirst for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.